Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Cara Judea, how are you? Wonderful, Ethan. It's great to to see you in person. Yeah, see us. Whatever this contradiction. Yeah. Whatever we want to call this, I'm sure I'll I'll contradict myself at least once throughout this podcast. But yeah, I'm really proud to introduce Cara Judea Al Hadef, and of course, we always love to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. All right, I'll jump in. Um, So about half an hour ago, actually, really. is a great representation of, uh, of why I am here today, which is I was in a, another Jewish environmentalist organization um, Zoom meeting called um, Green Sabbath. And after the speakers gave their presentation, um, it was opened up for Q&A as these things do. And um, the organizer said, oh, yes, Here's Kara. She's because <laughs> I was raising my hand, um, and so that that reminded me of a meeting, a different meeting I had a couple of days ago with uh, it's a Jews of Color organization, um, and they were working with two, uh, two Latinas who run something called Truth at Work, and a lot of our conversation was about speaking out and the costs of speaking out, and how we are compelled in our positions of marginality and in our positions also of, of hybridity to be that voice of, whoa. It's just voice, voice of, whoa. Voice of, uh, <laughs> voice of hello. Um, <laughs> life is always in motion, um, which is why I named my son Zazu and that's a whole other conversation, but- um, Get into it. Yeah. So the, 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 absolute necessity, the imperative of speaking out against injustices, against um, and for justices, I'll I'll put it in a positive framework. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what just happened a half an hour ago reminded me of a major part of my history, which is that of speaking out and speaking out in a way um, that is very much a part of my ethnic identity, um, my sexual identity, my, my political positions, how I live my life personally and politically, and also reminded me when I was defending my, my, thesis, my thesis as an undergrad, the, um, the director of the scholars program said to me, if we tied your hands behind your back, you wouldn't be able to defend your thesis. You know, you wouldn't be able to have a conversation. And it was so racist. It was so anti-Semitic. And it was just such a given, you know, that that's how people speak to people who are not part of that particular norm. Mm. Um, so in reference to your question, what is my background? My, my background is this. My background is, is, is one of not letting things go, <laughs> you know, right. is like of accountability, both personal accountability, working towards corporate accountability um, and, and certainly community responsibility, like in and accountability, like in situations that I may bring up in various eco villages where mm-hmm. I've lived. Um, and a lot of this began because of my position. I, I was born in Boulder, as I shared with you earlier, 
and later moved um, as a child in between retur returning to Boulder um, to a small town in Texas. And as a Jew, and my mom was from New York, so. Of course she was. She's Sephardic. She's, what'd you say? I said, of course she was. Of course, yeah. We're all from New York. Um, we're or California. New York. <laughs> right, or San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco, San Francisco for 15 years, but um, we were, there was, we experienced such hostility and also violence, physical violence for me as a, as a child there, but it really informed like the worst time was really in around fourth grade when I was nine. And it really informed how it is that I operate in the world, um, both as a kid then and as an adult now, um, in terms of understanding the connections between people who are disempowered and, and our sense of separation from one another in relation to this illusion of separation from our natural worlds. Um, and it just, it, it's highlighted again and again and again this morning with these co-Jewish environmentalists. There's still this, because I, I often bring to the forefront, wait a minute, when we're talking about um, alternatives to fossil fuel economies, and we're, this was in the context of Shemitah and um, the Sabbath, and Shemitah is the seven-year cycles in, in Jewish philosophies, mm -hmm. um, history, and Judaism, um, to let the land lay fallow, um, but it's used in the context of um, hyper-industrial economic growth. It's, so it's being used in all of these um, modern capitalist um, ideas. How do, we, how do we address convenience culture? People are saying renewables, you know? Well, actually renewables are rooted in fossil fuel economy and we need to question that. So the whole idea of questioning, um, bottom line is, is who I am. It's a very, it's a Jewish thing as well. And that's a Jewish thing, right? I, I would say as well. Um, and a multicultural, not just like one form of Judaism, but a multicultural element so, of, of Judaism. So when you, in one of your talks, you mentioned how you said your life way passions and desires were on the margins of margins. And you just mentioned your position as, of marginality. Is that referring to like your Jewish background of being like 0.01% of the population? Or is there, is there something else that makes you like... Margin being like very small percentage, right? Absolutely, yeah. So Jewish, but also a, a minority within a minority. I'm Sephardic, uh -huh. so I'm Spanish Jewish, and I also identify as Arab Jewish. You, can you explain the the difference? So it was Sephardic and sure, what, yeah, yeah. Um, so Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi, yeah. Most people in in the U.S. associate Jews with Yiddish with um, Jewish humor, with bagels, with gefilte fish, you know, with um, New York. Um, That's me. With a certain, right, right. <laughs> Shapiro, definitely. Um, with um, Jews who come from an Eastern European background. And so that's the dominant, often white Jewish um, culture of being mm -hmm. Jewish. My culture is actually obviously very similar, but very, very different in many ways. Um, as Sephardic coming from Spain. So my family who was expelled from Spain um, in alignment with the Mizrahi Jews, the Middle Eastern Jews. So we have a lot of cultural um, alignments and reverberation with, with Muslims. Um, often I find more with Muslims than with Ashkenazic Jews because- Reverberation, of did you say? Oh, reverberations, like, you know- Tension? Uh, 
frequency no frequencies a lot of similarities uh, similarities yeah you know okay. when, when you reverberate you're you're um, alive yeah. together that's what i mm-hmm. mean gotcha um, so those margins um being assumed that i'm white in certain environments uh, particularly like in eco villages um but then being in for example, in Texas, I absolutely was not seen as white. Mm. Um, so there's all of these racial and cultural slash religious categories that I feel very much marginalized by and with. Um, and then also politically among progressives, among liberals, and even among some radicals, um because of the way I choose to both raise my son and live my life um what I referred to I think that you're taking from the living on the margins of the margins is in relation to eco villages Mm -hmm. um where I've been living in various eco villages since about since I left um home when I was 17 18 um, in Europe and North Africa and here in the U.S. um with some normalcy environments in, in between, but in many of those situations, the commitment to ecological living, the commitment to racial equity, social justice um, was not as, I'll say integrated as- Integrated into what? Liked. Into the uh, eco-village integrated lifestyle? Integrated or? into people's lives, yeah. Like just the on, in, in the country or the whole world or what, what are you talking about in particular? So. In the particular eco-villages, for example, okay. I lived in one um, eco-village, Ithaca, for example. So let, let's talk yeah. about what is an eco-village, because I've never heard of it, and I imagine most oh, people okay. have as well. Yeah. Got it. Right. No, so an eco-village um, is an intentional community, so a group of people, um, mostly in this country, white, quote-unquote educated, college-educated, um, people often, I've been making the distinction a lot with my partner around dropouts versus people who want to drop in like deeply drop in um so but people who want to create an alternative to status quo capitalist uh you know living in your individual home with your separate lawnmower and your separate blender and Mm -hmm. um people who are really ideally often looking for a way to live in deeper alignment with their natural world, with the world around Mm -hmm. them. So in some cases, but very infrequently, there's shared transportation. So that's often been a challenge. Um, I've never owned a car for political reasons and- Ever? I've never owned a car, no. Wow. (laughs) No, Uh, and I I use that as an educational model. Like I'm I'm 50 years old. Um, It can be done. Say again? Yeah, so yeah it could be done, and you're happy. Yes. And I'm happy. I'm, you know, I'm I'm healthy. Knock on wood, mashallah. Um, so that allows me and my son to walk and to bike everywhere. And we've lived in environments where that was possible. Um, and I, and it's it's not about economic, you know, abundance necessarily because um, mm-hmm. I've lived far below the, the poverty line because I, I focus on a, a barter economy primarily in, in, in how I live. Um, so a lot of this is about, a lot of my choices are about re, 
um, re-examining what we think is necessary and are taken for granted world of, oh, that's necessary, that car is necessary, that credit card, that smartphone is necessary. And I've never owned you know, any of those things Whoa. explicitly as, as a, as a, as a like, political agenda, as an educational agenda. I'm really intrigued how, how you got to this point. And you said you've lived well below the poverty line, meaning that you you've like you haven't spent much money, but you've had like everything you need. Are you living in some kind of like communal environment where people are sharing things like a kibbutz kind of thing? Is that what the eco villages Um, are like or? Right. Yeah. So kibbutz is 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 a model of that. The eco villages often and I'll, I'll answer your question directly, but I'm still. And I want to talk about the barter economy that you mentioned, like not not using money to, to get things. Yes. Well, so um, I guess there's three things that we're, we're talking about right now. So the eco village is, um, again, an alternative status quo, middle class suburbia, let's say. Um, often, though, it ends up mimicking that world because those values are so entrenched in us as U.S. citizens. That really is an attempt to develop a sense of community and intimacy that doesn't require this outside currency, but more our what, what we have to offer in terms of our skills, individual skills. And now I'm not living in an eco village. My partner and son and dog and I, um, we live in our converted school bus. It's a repurposed school bus, um, love bus family. I hate to say it on Facebook. So lots of contradictions there. Ah! We all um, live with them. <laughs> say again. We all have them. We all live with them. Are, yes. Fun. Yeah. We are human. And, and, the, and um, my first book is actually very much all about those contradictions and ambiguities and how can we thrive in those in-between spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can share more about that, that, that one later. Definitely. Um, but, so we're not living in an explicit um, intentional community now. But we are, for the first time, we're in, so we're in Peonia, Colorado, and for the first time, we really feel a sense of um, tremendous alignment with the people around us. And it, it, it's more of a community than really, maybe, maybe anywhere that I've lived, except for perhaps San Francisco in the 90s in terms of the, the art scene and the, and the queer community. That was, mm-hmm. that was strong there. Mm-hmm. Um, but n- none of the eco villages. There's always been such a sense of uh, I, again of, of of property. Like this is this is still my privatized space and my privatized ideology. And you're not going to transgress it. And this is not about co-evolution, but me proving my point. Um, I'm. So that's, I'm extremely curious what your educational path was to get you to where you are today. Did you go through like the traditional elementary school, high school, college, PhD route that like all the rest of Americans are doing? Or did you do something unique? Did you go travel the world in between? I'm really curious how you got to be the way you are today. Well, I think a lot of it, um, my extraordinary parents um, who were divorced when I was six and that divorce actually led to me experiencing vast cultural differences mm-hmm. um so that was that was a part of it in terms of institutional education i i did go through the public public school and then 
um, high school and I took off um, time after high school. And I think smart that should just be required. Yeah. Mm. And I lived in intentional communities um, in communes in Europe and North Africa. Um, and that time was the most opening in terms of really um, understanding how our complexities are, are both can be both devastating in terms of human nature and just, you know, that's what makes us extraordinary beings. Um, and that was all when I was 18. And when I came back, I remember I met with some of my friends who I've known, uh, my three of my oldest friends who I've known for 47 years at this point, mm-hmm. um, and between 44 and 47 years. Um, and they had just come, come back from their colleges, their- First year? They were all, yeah. And I just remember thinking I was in such culture shock and I couldn't even use a, a water fountain because it was just this taken for granted normal thing that you go over, you press this button and water comes out. Mm-hmm. And it, there was, and the whole idea of small chat, all of it was, or small talk, all of it was, um, it just felt very anti-life wow. <laughs> to me. Um, but then um, I ended, I did go to Sarah Lawrence college um mm-hmm. in new york um for a couple of years and then new york city mom, um no uh, westchester they they called it westchester when they westchester. were trying to recruit students and they called it yonkers when they were trying to get uh, funding okay you know because of the economic <laughs> yeah. differences um and then my mom was teaching in the visual arts department at penn state and was diagnosed with a form of leukemia um in the early 90s and i left sarah lawrence to go be with her and ended up going to penn state and that was just the most really phenomenal educational opportunity in mm-hmm. terms of access to um a world that i could make myself because they did have funding um so i made my own major um corporeal politics and that's what i was referring to in the very beginning when the director um, uh, constrained my psyche and, and, and body. <laughs> um, and the, then le- years later, um, I ended up maybe 10 years later, I went through a PhD program with the European graduate school. Um, do you have I EU did, citizenship as well? No, but as a Sephardic Jew, um, I could get Spanish citizenship and, and Portuguese. And then there's a lot of other politics around tokenism with the Spanish government and and their virulent anti-Semitism that, um, again, another discussion. Yeah, we have a lot of that in the world. It's just part of the part of the game. But um, all right. So I want to get in, get into some, some content here. So we've talked a lot about the, the issue of climate change on this show and some solutions and just general environmental degradation. We've talking we've spoken about minimalism at length. So I kind of just I want to ask you about feminist embodied theory. But, but I think before that, I wanted to see what issues you have with the current sustainability movement. Because last week we, we spoke about how I'm, I'm very much in favor of regeneration. I thought I think you can speak on that uh, very well as well. So what's wrong with just the, the you just even just the verbiage of sustainability in, in your mind? Right. Um, so my first book. If I may do a little plug. Please do. Yeah, go right ahead. <laughs> so um, Viscous Expectations, Justice, Vulnerability, the Obscene, um, very much looks at sustainability. 
um, in relation to sustaining growth, sustaining economic mm-hmm. progress. Um, it, this book particularly is looking at, at the vulnerability of the body as a strategy for social justice to counter these ideas of sustainability that are actually fulfilling a sense of normalcy, fulfilling the status quo, fulfilling mainstream uh, consumerism, mainstream mm-hmm. sense of entitlement, ownership, property. Um, what I'm seeing with renewables, what I was speaking about before, is very much perpetuating this idea of sustainability. Got to keep growing. Got to keep moving. Got to keep right. the train rolling. And it's America. We got to get bigger. Yeah. And, and even in the face of people driving their Priuses and, um, you know, uh, having their, going, sending their kids to nature preschool um, and doing all the supposed right things with, with the, the illusions like recycling that massive illusion, compostables, BPA replacements, LEDs, all of the, you know, these, these um, everyday supposed alternatives that are actually simply reinforcing industrial capitalism. Wait, 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 wait. What's wrong with compostables? Doesn't that just turn into dirt? Compostables. No. So compostables, bioplastics, just so we're speaking about the same thing. Is that what you're... I don't know. I get a banana peel and throw it away. But yeah, you're talking like the compostable cups is like that bioplastic thing, right? Yes. Uh, Like I've been to dozens and dozens of conferences where environmental conferences or eco justice conferences, even um, where they are in their little refreshments. Thank God they're not plastic petroleum, plastic water bottles. Those are also often at environmental conferences, which blows me away Mm -hmm. Um, or even human rights conferences. Um, But the supposedly compostable cups or silverware, and those are bioplastics that are often grown with monoculture crop, monocrop corn, mm-hmm. um, hosted by Monsanto, glyphosate, Roundup. Um, and they can only be composted in a certain level, certain temperature. Uh, and it takes, so, so there's all kinds of chemistry that doesn't allow for an everyday household, for example, to have those disintegrate. But it gives people the impression that they're doing something beneficial. And so they have permission to buy. And not only that, but they have permission to buy more and more. Mm-hmm. And they feel like they, that they can then waste. And the whole idea of waste, of course, needs to be completely unpacked. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what my second book, Sazu Dreams, uh, addresses in many ways. The idea of waste and how people are seen as waste. Um, and how we need to look at those relationships between people seen as waste and objects that we think are going to be thrown away. And this whole idea of away, of course, is, is also a falsehood. Correct. Um, and then how do we begin to look at cross-cultural models for a shift mm-hmm. away wanna... from this sustainability, the Can sustainability you... of normalcy? dig into that a little bit cross-cultural models are you you're like you referring to like indigenous knowledge kind of thing or, or, or what does that mean yeah both so indigenous often when the idea of indigeneity refers to native peoples from you know these continents from north and south um global north and south and um americas and in Zazu Dreams, Between the Scarab and the Dung Beetle, 
a cautionary fable for the Anthropocene era. Um, in that cross-cultural climate book, I'm looking at indigenous relationships to agriculture, engineering, architecture, not just from native peoples from these lands, but specifically Middle Eastern indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. um, and also the characters visit Southern India. Um, so looking at models that have existed for thousands of years, um, also in terms of healing and medical models that don't involve big pharma, um, so really questioning our relationship to big pharma, big ag, big banks. You know, there's, there's a whole uh, checking out our, our addiction to these conglomerates and then looking at ways of um, understanding and modeling natural world examples of symbiosis and then these cross-cultural examples of symbiosis. So I guess my question would be, so there, there is like a big number of people though. So, so how do we deal with like getting all these people what they need without these big, large conglomerates having so much control and obviously, you know, misusing it at certain points? What, what is the alternative? Because didn't these indigenous communities live in, in like small tribal groups where they, and then I, I know one of the things from reading lots of Simon Sinek's work and hearing his take on anthropology is that human beings do very well in groups of 150. And once right. you get beyond that, things start to break down because you don't know everyone personally. So how can we create large scale systems that will actually work based on these models that as far as I know, there hasn't been any, any other like governmental organizational body that has had the ability, I don't know the, the ability or, has, or some people, you know, you're obviously very critical of the U S as most people are uh, in America, at least these days. But um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I just don't see like what, what, what like has worked better than what exists currently, even if what exists currently is still not working that well. Well, two things. One is when we look at, for example, eco-villages or other intentional communities that range maybe from seven, 70 to 200 people. That's, that's mm -hmm. the group the that right. I've, I've lived in. Yeah. Um, because we've so deeply internalized the values of capitalism, the values of industrialization, the, uh, the illusion that civilization actually is a given the way we live um, in the midst of its total barbarism. Um, even in those places, in that small group of people, because those values are so deeply internalized, there hasn't really been a profound alternative because we're still replicating those norms. It's kind of like a, many of them are glorified suburbias. What I'm suggesting is a simultaneous individual, community, corporate and policy examination. And it is simultaneous, which demands a lot from ourselves. It requires a, a, a tremendous slowing down and a process of questioning, as I mentioned before, what we do take for granted um, so that our daily behavior is constantly reflected in these larger scopes, the micro is constantly reflected within the macro. And something I'm playing with now, an eco-social 
paradigm shift, which I'm calling SOUL, um, an acronym, which obviously has its problems too, but shared, opportunity, used, and local. And this isn't about some kind of uh, hyper-idealistic um, illusion, because when we see, even in, in larger towns, like there's, there are two towns right now in Utah that mm -hmm. have instituted growth moratoriums. Those are, there are cities, growth moratoriums. That's tremendous. I mean, there are examples when we do, when we focus on this intersection of individual community, corporate, that intersection, that's when the micro and the macro can begin to shift. And of course, it's unbelievably challenging and confusing and disorienting because we have so deeply internalized these other values as, oh, well, I need that. And my child needs that. And we need this to be um, healthy and stable. And when in fact, if we begin to see like the, the O in soul, shared opportunity, used local, the O is, is a, a invitation for people to take creative risks together. And for those risks to then translate into bigger pictures. But we have to start, I think it's been clear, we have to start in our personal lives in relation to. So it's not just blaming the individual and ignoring that infrastructures determine so much, but like in the Occupy movement, when we're blaming the 99% or in so many environmentalist constructs, we're, we're blaming oil, we're pointing our finger at oil and gas, yet we're completely participating in those oil and gas economies. Definitely. So it's the simultaneity that I think is absolutely crucial and that requires, again, slowing down and collaborative creative risk taking. All right. I, I love the way you think. It's so unique. I've never talked to anyone like you in my life. And in order to shine a light on your ideas more, I'm, I'm going to push back and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask, yeah, yeah. what evidence do you have that something like this that you're proposing could actually work? Like what, any sort of historical evidence to no, show? I have evidence, the, but not, all right, or, or, or pontification, whatever, like of these things I, that what I, I what love the is. idea. I love the idea of like right. a group is 150 and then we just keep stacking them. And then they all work together. If like, cause I, I don't know. Hey, go ahead. Well, for me, it's, it's less a question of evidence and more of what has to be done. <laughs> you know? Uh, well, yeah. Fair this enough. Is, fair enough. This is like to avoid uh, collapse. Of course. Me say again to avoid collapse. To, well, yeah. And, 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 and not just to avoid something, but to build a sense of integrity in our lives. I mean, of course, me never owning a car really makes no difference. And I understand that, except I, I do believe that modeling is education and that education, and I'm not talking obviously about formalized education, institutionalized education. I'm speaking about education in terms of our daily lives, how mm -hmm. we're choosing to interact with one another and how we're choosing to interact with objects around us and with histories around us. When I, you know, when I pick up this candle, you know, wh where was it made? Is it, is it petroleum based? When, um, when, when my son's school is looking to buy new clipboards or the, for example, music stands, that's what they're doing now. 
mm-hmm. rather than, and they can't afford just to buy new ones. So I'm suggesting if they can't get donations, let's go to local welders. And there are, this is, town is filled with artisans and um, with people who do construction. Let's work with the community. And this is where the soul comes in and the opportunity. Let's work with local community members to build music stands. They may not look like formal music stands that we're used to seeing, but then we don't take these things for granted. And then we can learn and the kids can learn, the children can learn that the metal was mined perhaps in a Bolivian tin mine Mm -hmm. and the people's lives. So this is where environmental racism comes in. There are people's lives who are involved in like the microphone, right? I mean, how many, we, we take the embodied energy the ridiculousness, we're both on these computers, these laptops. I do own a laptop, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. obvious. But in how I educate my son, it's implicit that he understands the, what happens with e-waste, mm-hmm. with electronic waste, that all of these elements are, are integral. And just one more thing before you jump into your next question. Um, a lot of what I share and, and write about and, and teach hopefully in a way that is an invitation and not seen as a judgment is petroleum parenting. This idea of how as parents, can we look at the ways that we're contributing to environmental devastation and humanitarian abuses and make other collective choices through our relationships to consumerism, through our relationships to corporate accountability and not just blaming the corporations and blaming fossil fuel investments and but but really looking at ourselves again the simultaneous the mirror the echo yeah well i love that idea that things don't just appear like when you like go and buy something at the store it's not just like oh it was at the store like some someone had to create it and craft it um and what i will say is i i do disagree with you when you said that uh, you not having a car doesn't make any difference because now you're on this show and you've written four or five books or you, and you've done a bunch of talks. And I'm sure you've probably mentioned in other talks. And when you say that to people and you look very healthy and happy and normal, people be like, huh, like I can do that, that too. Oh, I, forget what, what what, I, I, can, I can clarify. Um, I absolutely believe, that, believe it makes a difference, which is why you do I it. do it. And <laughs> which is why with my son, you know, if we have to walk or bike, or hitchhike, you know, we've made so many amazing relationships because we've gotten rides from people. And that's not about usurping someone else's um, choice to own a car. It's about relationship and shared, that goes back to the soul, shared quote unquote resources. And we can talk about the whole idea of a resource being, you know, colonialist and imperialist to begin with. I want to talk Um, about that next. (laughs) um, So absolutely it makes, I think it, it, I, I feel, I breathe that it makes a difference. And it's just one of many departure points for many extending relationships. So that's what I want to say, that it's not an end all by any means, but it's about these interrelationships and constantly acknowledging how our behavior is reflected in others' behavior and how that is reflected in much grander when we're, then when we're talking about big ag, for example. Right. Well, people are like terrified of, of other people. They've been wronged so many times. You telling someone that yes. they should, they should go hitchhike. They would never do something like that. How can someone get over that when they watch horror movies where people get killed all the time and stuff? 
And we live. And one thing I noticed when I when I lived in Australia, even like a country that's part of like the British Commonwealth, that's so similar to our own country. I would walk around with headphones in because I'm American and this is just what we do. We go to class, we walk and, and I would walk by myself and I would look around and like everyone's like in pairs, like hanging out with other people. And I'm like, huh, like I'm the only one who's like alone. Cause like in America, you got to do your own thing and figure it out yourself. You got to be independent. I mean, that's so deeply ingrained in our culture. Uh, just an anecdote for me, but I, I want to kind of get into your, your criticisms of like capitalism, green capitalism and how it relates to colonialism this is something we've never talked about on this podcast before and kind of get into the criticisms of like how our society functions on like a macro level i guess well so let me drop into the micro for for a moment in terms you of what you just talking about with with self-reliance mm-hmm. um when i was pregnant with my son 10 years ago I, I don't know how many events and books out and articles about the cry it out method and teaching your your infant to sleep alone and I've, I've written a lot about what this means in terms of our privatized world. How then, like even in the eco-villages where people are dry, you know, where there is no shared transportation, um, where eating together is maybe a once a week activity, where, and that means that we would be using less, if you're using propane, for example, to cook your food, we would be using less propane uh, because we, we would be cooking together. But these layers are so, there, there's so many elements that feed into this illusion of self-reliance and this illusion of mine and my space, my property, my ownership. One um, phenomenal aspect of the uh, Jewish concept of Shemitah that I mentioned earlier of letting go, this, this seven-year sabbatical of letting the land lay fallow is to take down the fences, take down the gates where property is not about us versus them any longer, you know, we're, we're xenophobia, you know, exclusionism, and obviously racism, eugenics, I mean, all of that feeds, uh, feeds into and stems out of the idea of private property. So in this sabbatical year, there's this idea, and I mean, how radical, right? How absolutely incredible would it be if we didn't, if it wasn't just this isn't. This is my space, and you can't enter it. Um, where we still have integrity and ba- boundaries, of course, but where there's a whole different understanding of our interdependency. And if we could unlearn as adults and learn, teach our children, co-learn, co-teach with our children, a whole different understanding of us versus them, of divide and conquer, mm-hmm. where people with different opinions different backgrounds, different orientations to how they conduct themselves physically, their politics, all of that. If that was an invitation for dialogue rather than an invitation for battle. Shalom, peace is not about the absence of war, but it's about negotiation. It's about difference, you know? And for me, not owning a car or a credit card or smartphone is not about saying I'm doing something right and you're doing something wrong. It's about inviting in dialogue, inviting in a difference because I don't obviously expect people to leave suburbia or their urban areas or wherever they're living and to move 
to a converted school bus and to repurpose everything, you know, from their DC refrigerator that used electro, elect, um, uh, solar panels or that's not what I'm suggesting at all. What I'm suggesting is moving beyond what we think is absolute. Um, like you said, give me some evidence. Mm -hmm. Instead, playing with the possibilities, reimagining, re-envisioning a future and present simultaneous by looking at our past, other cultures' pasts, our own pasts, if we dig into our own ancestral lineages and memories. I'm sure each of us have so much to learn and to contribute. So again, it's the simultaneous acknowledgement of past, present, future, individual, community, corporation, policy, to, to, to self-reflect, to be vulnerable, to ask questions, to collaborate. And it's not about knowing the answers, obviously. It's about you know, being raw and saying, this isn't working. We've got to make some, some major changes and not within the framework, the sustainability framework, the renewables framework, which imply, it's, they still reply, uh, imply economic growth, efficiency, the whole idea of efficiency, recycling. You know, you're doing it in order to do more. And what if doing more, I'll say one last thing. What if doing more meant being alive more? And that's not about sacrifice. You know, people often say self-restraint is sacrifice. I don't, that, you know, that's, that's not sexy. Who wants to sacrifice? You know, we, we like our comforts. What mm. if it was about reframing and creating infrastructures that supported us so we didn't have to have comforts that relied on other people's hell? Hell. You're talking about us keeping all the resources and then dis disenfranchised places being destroyed. All right. Here, here's what's happening. I'm throwing out the questions. I just, I just, I want, I want to explain where I'm at and see what you have to say and see if we can kind of come to some, some solutions here, some like practical actions that you and I or anyone who's listening can actually take to get this world to. A, I love the idea of us collaborating, communicating, and throwing away things that that are obviously. Um, inequitable and bad for most people, but maybe good for like a small percentage of the population. But so he here's what I got. I went to business school. I studied business management, entrepreneurship. I always, and I've been raised to be an individualist and go out, forge my own path, create my own destiny. But I'm a very introspective person. And I also took, had a minor degree in philosophy. So I've always, I'm deeply infatuated with what is the best way to be living. What's the most virtuous life you can possibly live. So I've come from the framework of, I'm going to um, plug into the capitalist system and out of it, I'm going to bring great good and value to the world. That that's the way I see things. So now I'm doing this business climate change realty where I do, you know, I'm right in the system, selling assets, creating wealth for people. And what I'm doing is I'm taking all of my wealth and I'm trying to give it to people who are going to do better work than me, who can come up with the creative solutions that will fix the system. Because I'm, I don't have the mind to go and reform the system, which is why I'm talking to intelligent people like you who can think about all the, the way the world works. And I want to give people like you or people who run nonprofit organizations or people who are willing to recreate or, or, or not even recreate, just build off of the system that we have and make it better. So I believe that by using the system we have in place, we can create 
better corporations that give back to the planet. So that that's where I'm at. Right, what right. How, what do you think we can do with this? I from what I've I've understand that the world is is the best it's ever been as 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 much as we're like destroying the planet and killing all the resources for people um there's less people impoverished than has ever been in the past um as far as like like a percentage wise if like 500 years ago 60% of people were like living under the poverty line now it's like 20% or something so it's been an improvement that's that's what i understand maybe i'm wrong correct me if i'm wrong but so th- I, it seems things have gone up but it also seems like a lot of the resources have gone to a very small percentage of the population and they're hoarding it and then sucking them all up so i would just like to figure out how to live in a way where everything is being enriched through our actions where we're all working together with the plants the animals the humans are treating each other well doesn't mean we all have to have like an equal role and an equal outcome i'm not i wouldn't propose that because people if there's it's a fact that some people work harder than others and would like to have more rewards from that but um so so yeah that's where i'm i, I believe that the system in place can be fixed and made better and and create the systems that we're looking for through businesses and corporations. So I wanted to see what you say to that because I I can't ask questions. I just want to hear hear your thoughts. Yes. And I, I I certainly appreciate much of what you just said and I very intensely disagree with much of what you just said. Um mm. which and that's great, right? That's wouldn't be fun way. if you, yeah, it wouldn't be fun if right. I didn't if you didn't. <laughs> um just briefly in terms of that things are better now and even defining poverty. When we look at the way all the isms have transformed, sexism, racism, homophobia, I mean, poverty, what we have done so meticulously is to create band-aids and facades and illusions to perpetuate the absolute vile nature of all those things where they are festering and so much worse in so many ways, including our physical health. So just because like this morning we were talking about um, when my son was getting ready for school, my husband was sharing that his, um, his friend who used to work in a hospital uh, showed a photograph of doctors who were smoking in the hospital um, and they were it was it was an advertisement for look even doctors do it it reduces stress and so yes we're not in that place right where doctors are advertising but hospitals the medical establishment just as one example has become such uh the big pharma has become such uh, yeah the 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 emphasis on power and greed at the expense of our bodies, where children are our collateral damage again and again and again. That's one example in terms of environmentalism. Yes, certain Mm -hmm. rivers are not on fire or lakes are not on fire because Kodak is no longer dumping their photochemicals in the lake. Mm -hmm. But the pervasiveness of poisons, of toxins, in every element of our lives, whether it's as subtle as a receipt that a woman who just bought BPA-free, um, you know, baby containers, baby bottles 
for her baby that she's not able to breastfeed because she had physical complications because of the C-section and is now using these BPA supposedly free when the replacements of BPA are so much more toxic and the receipt that she just touched to buy those things and those things other way, right, are made in China and who knows what living conditions and working conditions. And now she's going to, and she'll feed her, her baby something or she'll touch something or she'll touch her baby's face. And those chemicals in the receipt are so much, so much worse than the original BPA product to begin with. So, I mean, that's, that's one among two among I acknowledge so both many of those. I, And again, the, the racism, I mean, the level of tokenism and, 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 and sexism in any kind of paying job, whether you're doing quote unquote menial labor or, you know, in, in certain, so again, these, these supposed advancements, improvements, I think again and again, we can show that things, I don't want to even say better or worse, mm-hmm. but the levels of complications and the levels of manufactured consent have reached such um, subtleties and pervasiveness. They're so insidious that our responsibility, and when I say responsibility, I don't mean some kind of um, punishing you're responsible for this or individuals mm-hmm. are responsible or shaming, but the ability to respond, responsibility, our empathy, that must be developed in order for us to see how our lives and how our quote unquote comfort, <laughs> our comforts are so reliant on other people's suffering and on the natural and on wildlife suffering and on, on natural Absolutely. habitat suffering. So I, I really need to say that in terms of the idea of improvement and poverty and that we need to start redefining poverty because when we're defining poverty in the context of wealth, for example, in, in 93-ish, 94, I was living in Bangladesh. I was doing food aid work in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, I was working for USIA. I didn't realize at the time that they're a branch of the CIA. And it's very much about promoting US democracy. And I realized that as I was there, because I was trying to get to the roots of why the droughts and the floods were creating such phenomenal havoc in these people's lives. But the people I was there working for, the food aid people, it was all about band-aids. And those band-aids are killing us and they will continue to kill us unless we begin to recognize that there are superficial ways of maintaining status quo, the illusion that the standard of living is one of wealth and actually not seeing that we ourselves are radically impoverished in the way our, many of us are living our lives with our morally many uh, morally but but logistically commuting you know you may yes spiritual across the board you're getting in your bmw you're driving you're doing your commuter drive of course it's a little different now with covid but not so different Mm -hmm. being that we're on computers all the time and jeff bezos is the world's first trillionaire and this idea is that new did that just happen no no what i'm saying is in terms of amazon sales have gone up you know prime unbelievable mm-hmm. since covid so the illusion that this has been a, a consumption quarantine is also bogus what, what i mean in terms of poverty our impoverished lives yes morally spiritually structurally in terms of spending time with our families actually nourishing our bodies and our 
ecosystems through living in homes that aren't contaminated with buying a new couch and that couch is off-gassing and where, you know, where was that, those, where were those chemicals produced? Solar panels, you know, buying, oh, my family can afford new solar panels in our, what, 7,000 square foot house. And where were those solar, what are the mine, what, what was the extractive mining involved? What are the minerals in the solar panels, let alone the infrastructure? And I, I just, just discuss all of this in my, in my book, Zazu Dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we unpack those, those ideas of I'm doing it because I'm trying to do the right thing or um, because it's trendy, because it's socially responsible, like you're saying, socially responsible corporations, you know, the whole mm-hmm. idea, um, what's the acronym? S, uh, SRC. Um, so you know, Caesar, I mean, yeah, at- Caesar, corporate social ethical responsibility, something like right, that. Yeah. So all of that needs to be, I'm not saying it's a no or a yes. It's not mm-hmm. a binary. Life isn't a black and white, to- you know? Right, right. And as Jews, we know that. But mm. we have to tease out the relationships and what we think is a given. It's, it's, it requires tremendous self-inquiry and a, and a willingness to put ourselves in a position of of, of analysis of being grilled, you know, but grilling ourselves in a way that's loving though. Absolutely. Too. So I, mean, I, some... I, I want to emphasize that also. Well, some <laughs> people, yeah. It's essential to this. Yeah, no, you need to always be. Yeah. I mean, that's again, it's a Jewish thing being, being criticized so you can become better or it's not even a Jewish thing. Just, just, it's a, it's a thing for growth. You're always looking for mentors to help you, you, you be better. And I'm, I, if we don't want to use the, the term better or worse, I would say, all, all I was saying is that the current state of affairs is preferred to the past state. I, everything you're saying is accurate. I'm aware of the dysfunction of our society. And that's why I work. I'm working every day to try to play my part to, to make it more preferable. But, but what I'm saying is 100 years ago, a woman couldn't vote. 300 years ago, nobody could vote. And we lived under monarchical systems all the way back to maybe back 70,000 years ago, we lived in these communal environments where people had respect for each other. But as things scaled out and these empires took place, usually it was kings, lords, and peasants. And most people were peasants. And now we're getting to a point where, yes, there are still peasants. That's bad. We should treat everyone well. I, I personally believe in a, in a minimum standard of living for, for all people. Um, I would I, Regardless if, if that makes sense or not, I think that's a good idea. And we should treat people well. Go ahead. Just in terms of minimum, I, I, again, this is not about where I'm coming from and what I would like to teach is not about minimum. Mm-hmm. It's not about less because that whole scale is based on productivity. It's based on a framework of accumulation mm-hmm. and based on a framework of have and have nots. So the whole idea of minimum, I, I just want to check. And part of our conversation, it has to do with language, right? Our language itself is compounding the very systems of oppression. And when we think that we're living less or we're living minimally, 
when in fact the extraordinary abundance of what it means to actually recognize our interconnectedness, that is so overflowing and so maximum, you know? Yeah. I I really, I I just want to highlight because so much of the danger of these conversations is that people think, oh, she's suggesting we go back and live in a cave, you know, (laughs) or or a bus, you know? And, And it's, this is... I think you're suggesting something that's never, never really existed before, which is why I'm so interested in it. Well, I think it exists in... Nature? I, I, yeah, I mean, it exists among people and in nature and in history and in contemporary lives in a myriad ways. It's when we begin to make the connections and then we can see, oh, that way of living and that way of living and that interrelationship and that interdependency, all of those put together can create a map, you know, can create a framework for us. And I would say exactly the opposite. It's all here already. Stephen Hawking, and he's one of I, the, the characters in Sausage Dreams. The, um, everything we need to know is already within us, just waiting to be realized. Yeah. And that's very much of an indigenous <laughs> concept, major cross-cultural indigenous concept, that it's all, it, it's here. It's a question of being receptive, of slowing down enough, of not participating in the systems that we think are just a given to witness what does already exist. And then, then we apply it, you know, that's then, then that's where we we use our human intelligence or our, (laughs) you know, our capacity as whatever we are as different from things that we have deemed as other. Mm -hmm. That's, that's where we take our, our sense of responsibility and compassion and again, risk and say, this is, you know, the, the word radical means root. That's, you know, the, the, the Latin. And, and I think if we did that with a lot of our, our words, our, our language isn't inherently imperialistic. A lot of it, I think a lot of it can give us some amazing insight when we look at the, the various Latin and Greek derivatives language English is an oppressive language in many ways but in many ways the answers are even just in our language mm-hmm. you know when we're looking at the, the roots of of words oikos o-i-k-o-s is the root of, of eco it's home it means home and that's ecology and economics economics and home in 2021 uh-uh you know <laughs> very little very little intimacy between economics and home, except for, oh, you bought a new carpet, you know, or your new solar array. But how much of economics and ecology in the context of home could be re-envisioned together in small communities and then have that become models for larger communities. We make up the macro. I mean, the micro makes up the macro. Without a doubt. So when we're going around chanting, I mean, my, my son was born a couple of months before the Occupy movement. And we were in Oakland, unassisted home birth on my 40th birthday, a couple blocks away from the Oakland Federal Building, where much of the Occupy Oakland Occupy movement took place. Literally tanks and SWAT teams were outside of our window. And 
we, when he was a few months old, we marched and so much of the march was, you know, we're, we're, we're the 99%. So it's up to us to, again, to work together to cross over into the corporate. Not, I would say, just by making corporate responsible, but a complete shift in how we understand power relationships. And so much of it is about accountability, but so much of it is about vulnerability also. Okay. So are you writing two books right now? <laughs> well, yeah, several things are going on. Um, I have I, about I six, wanna... six anthologies coming out. Um, I, I'd like to share for your viewers, I'd like to share um, the one I mentioned before, Zazu Dreams, mm -hmm. Between the Scarab and the Dung Beetle, Cautionary Fable for the Anthropocene Era. I want to share that one in particular, um, more than the other books at the moment. And if people are interested, they can go to my website and to see all my writings, or many of them, carajudea.com. And I'll just say, because I'm adapting Zazu Dreams to a stage performance and a uh, screen performance. And in my fantasy world, it would be something along the lines of Hamilton in terms of access, your broad viewership. Um, and I, I would love to do a musical version of this cross-cultural climate justice book. Um, and also um, a screen production. So if people are interested in collaborating, I would, I would love that. So that, that's, that's the one I wanna highlight out of all the other materials. So, all right, let, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about that, whatever you want to highlight about that book, but I really want to dig into more about the, the next project you're working on, which is how we actually would go about transforming Anthropocene yes. into the Ecozoic era. Yes. Cause you know, I'm looking for a solution. If, if we can get to this idealized state that you're kind of talking about, I would want to think, think about how to practically accomplish that. And I, as a business person, can't think of any other way to do it, but through markets. So I'd love to hear your thoughts, but do you want to talk about, about Zazu for a while first? No, no, no. I'm, ha I'm happy to jump in. Um, I, I'd say what I'd like to focus on at this moment is in terms of making real change, pervasive yes. change mm -hmm. today. Uh, this year. Today, today, I, I'm going to say our kids in relation to us, how, how we're raising, how, how we are framing education. Um, and this isn't just about people who have children by any means. It's, you know, you hear all the time, oh, it's the children, um, you know, the Greta Thunberg and uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to have birds in 20 years. I mean, all of this. What if we were teaching ourselves and our kids to have a different relationship to the objects around us. Where we see a tree and we don't see a resource, you know, we don't see something that is just gonna benefit us, even shade, you know, but where we see a tree and we understand a history, that the tree has its own history. And we understand that trees communicate among themselves and that plants have decentralized nervous systems and they are electrical beings. We are all electrical beings. And for that to become part of our educational model. So yes, markets, yeah. I mean, it's, it's gotta be multi, multi-pronged. Um, my emphasis is on how 
we look at our daily lives and that will then influence the markets. We look, um, I can send you some of my articles about um, um, smartphones and how the, the market has been so saturated for adults. So now where the, so many of these companies are literally saying it is time that children now are our prime market for smartphones. Mm-hmm. even knowing how toxic they are to children's bodies, let alone their capacity for empathy, their ability to see when they're used um, before the age of two. I mean, there's so many layers why it is extraordinarily obscene that smartphone manufacturers are targeting children as their primary audience now that the adult market has been saturated. So I think these multi-pronged approaches go hand in hand with one another. And, and if they don't, then we're in trouble that education has to go hand in hand with marketing with a constant checks and balances. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about Zazu before, before we go, just like any, anything you want to explain about it. I'd love to hear anything you have got to say. I'm here. Here's what I'm thinking right now. I I could sit here and talk to you for the next three hours. So because I can't do that, I hope you're willing to come back on the show at some point and talk again. (laughs) because <laughs> I could we could go yeah. for for so long and I'm, I'm maybe one of these days I'll, I'll do one of those shows like that so I mean you would definitely be someone I could do that with but um yeah let's let's talk about the book you want to promote I'd love to hear all about it so Zazu Dreams uh, and I don't have a copy but if you could include an image that would be great thanks I'll put um, it as a thumbnail right here okay all right great um I'll, I'll just before I get into the book just as some background that often when people hear who's endorsed it they pay more attention um, because they think it's a children's book and it's not. It's a fable for adults. Um, and it's been endorsed by Noam Chomsky, um, Bill McKibben, Paul Hawken, David Orr, James E. Hansen, who's the major climate scientist, Eve Ensler, who many of us know, um, Shakji Humpty Hump, who recently died. He's my, my son's uncle um, from Digital Underground. Um, Stephanie Seneff, who's fought Monsanto for so many years. Um, so a number of Paul Hawken, um, so a number of activists, um, artists, scholars, scientists, Arun Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi's grandson. Um, and they've endorsed it, I'm gonna say from very different perspectives. Um, some looking at the um, humanitarian content, some looking at the environmental content, um, some looking at the uh, necessity to create a new genre of education, like um, Arun Gandhi called it edutainment. Um, it's divided into two sections. One is the image and the narrative, the first section. Um, and then the second is about 400 endnotes of historical, literary, economic, environmental science references. So it's a dialogue between the sciences and the humanities. And it's really about unlearning what we think we know and opening into the capacity of children's empathy and our own sense of empathy um, by seeing the connections between humanitarian abuses and ecological collapse, but then looking at cross-cultural examples of symbiosis, both among humans and then in our natural worlds and seeing those as, as models because I'm in the high desert now. We don't have water. We don't have running water. Um, we just moved here a few months ago, but we're building a water catchment system. 
And what I've learned about, I think Colorado in general is that every drop of water is owned. So it's actually even illegal to do water catchment systems. I know that well. Um, so say again. I said, I know that well. I'm in real estate, so I, I know that right, well. Right, yeah. right, you're right. So yeah, I'd love to speak with you more about that. Um, it's phenomenally profound and perverse. Um, and I'm so curious about the implications and also our, our ways of maneuvering as, as citizens um, in that frame. So I'm bringing that up because basically we're in the high desert of the Rockies. And what Zazu Dreams does is position examples, for example, from ninth century Iran and aquifers in particular climates, environments there that we can then learn to adopt maybe aspects of them, maybe fully, or looking at uh, what happened in Michigan, Flint, Michigan, 2015 with the lead poisoning and looking at that in relation to Turkey and coal power plants and the, uh, water, po- the water contamination. And so it's this constant back and forth reference across time and space. So I talk also about quantum wormholes and quantum entanglements. Um, <laughs> you haven't gotten to that, that chapter, okay. <laughs> um, but again, the simultaneity, I really wanna emphasize the simultaneity. Um, when we're looking at different cultures, different geographies, different climates, different ways of having a sense of intimacy with nature, of our understanding our own electrical, our own electrical beings in relation to interspecies communication, all of that, it's fertile ground for us to learn and to take action and not just go with the familiar. That's what you know, this viscous expectations um, in so many ways is about the unfamiliar, the fertility, our unknown, not someone else's unknown. We learn from others. And that again requires humility and vulnerability. Fair enough. Well, Cara Judea, I'm I'm just blown away. I, I, I really would love to just t- sit in a room with you for six hours and just talk about all of the facets of life. But um, I'm just so I'm so blessed. I'm so lucky to have it had sounds you very on the sweaty. show. <laughs> sounds very sweaty. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, Thank you. It's been it's been a pleasure. I, I really I already look forward to coming on and talking to you again. Uh, I have to think through everything you've said today. I always just love to ask people what what advice they have for young people who are coming up during this time at the end of the show. Yeah. Trust yourself, trust your intuition and take risks by making unexpected connections. And in those risks of unexpected connections, you may find, we may find allies in unexpected places and we need each other. Amen. Well, it's been a pleasure. Like I said, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I, I look forward to, to chatting with you after this a little bit as well. And every, for everybody okay. else, hope you enjoy the rest of your day and we'll see you next week as always. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate. Here at Climate Change Realty, we don't just donate 50% of our net commissions to fight climate change. We also donate a full 50% of our real estate referrals.
So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.